Welcome to the Finance and Investments Student Association's FISA Fireside Chats with Matthew and Oliver. Welcome back, everyone, to the FISA Fireside Chat uh, with Matt and Oliver. We're super happy today to have Chris LeFleur James with us, a uh, senior account manager in the tech industry at BDC, was also a president of FISA in 2018-2019, uh, graduated in 2019. Welcome to the pod, Chris. Thank you very much, guys. Great to meet you. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Awesome. Let's get started with uh, the classic question we ask everyone. You have uh, an awesome Pat was president, currently works at BDC. I, I'd love to hear how you ended up in your current role. Maybe talk about your experience at uh, at Concordia and how you managed to to go through a degree and be uh, and be so successful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I can walk through kind of the early days uh, at uh, at JMSB. Um, I came in what would that would have been 2016 um, with you know big ambitions. Um, I guess some people don't necessarily have the idea of getting involved early on. I had intended pretty early to kind of squeeze every bit of experience I could get out of JMSB. So I came across the um, the associations and that whole side of things pretty early. Um, I think my first experience was probably the FISA firm tours. I don't know if those are still happening, but that was kind of the early iterations back then. Um, yeah, those are done now. Fair enough. But um, yeah, so that was my, my first experience. I thought that was amazing that that, that kind of event uh, could be student run and operated. Um, and, you know, you could get those kind of valuable experiences outside the classroom. So that was, I was sold pretty early on on the um, on the involvement side of things, um, I mean, get lots of, of learning experience in the classroom, but there's there's lots of value outside of it. So um, I think after that, I had applied for first year rep and important to note that I did not get accepted for, for FISA first year rep, but that did not dissuade me either from, uh, from pursuing uh, getting involved. And so later on that year, I can't remember what the sort of recruitment cycle is for, for those kinds of things, but um, came in as, as uh, VP external um, later that year, uh, which ultimately was a, a much better fit. I think the, the first year rep was uh, me reaching a little bit for just wanting to get involved in, in any in anything in any way, but it didn't really align with what I could bring to the table. Um, so yeah, VP external, that was a lot of fun. Learned about sort of the, the ins and outs of, of um, sort of selling uh, selling FISA to, to outside parties. Essentially, that's the the position is to to raise money and make sure that the, the entity can uh, that the FISA could operate and, and host events and things like that. So that was very cool. And then applied for, for ran for president the following year, and that went uh, that went well. And yeah, we had a blast uh, over those uh, over those couple of years. Um, and so I guess in um, in my second year at Concordia, I started um, an internship at Bombardier, which led into the, the third year as well. <clears throat> um, and so that was, uh, that was in, that was sort of like a, I would say a more pure financial analysis type of type of role. Um, good for honing my Excel skills, but beyond that, it was a little bit limiting and in, in where it was gonna, where it was gonna lead me. Um, and so, um, and I can speak to how that, that came about as well a little bit to, later on too. But um, from there in my third year, coming towards the end, started looking around at what might be um, a good fit. 
And a lot of my exposure over the years at Concordia to job opportunities was in the sort of more typical banking roles for, for the finance path. Uh, the whole debt side, which is what I'm in now, was pretty un, untouched or, or wasn't really brought to our awareness. So um, I could speak to hopefully speak to that a little bit today. Um, but that ultimately was was a better alignment with with what I was looking for. Um, and so ended up at uh, at BDC through uh, through personal contacts. That is just a, your first cue that that um, that networking is the uh, yeah. is the the not to say the be all and end all. It's, it's pretty high up on your list of priorities for your years at Concordia um, and have been here now for coming up on four years um, and uh, learning more and more every day. Awesome. Well, yeah, quite the interesting path. Maybe maybe we bring it back closer to the beginning, rewind a little bit back to your days at Concordia. So can you just speak a little to like the process of uh, how you landed your first internship at Bombardier and, and what that role maybe entailed? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've listened to a couple other other podcasts as well. So hopefully I can bring in a little bit of a different angle. I'm going to lean heavily on the the relationships aspect of yeah. things um, and that opportunities can come from from just about anywhere. Um, so beyond sort of the, the FISA side of things, I was working throughout my whole undergrad um, waiting tables at a restaurant and my two most significant work opportunities have come from relationships from working in a restaurant of, of all things, okay. of all the That's networking great. I did throughout my, my undergrad. Um, one was I, I was working with uh, a mechanical engineer who was doing internships at Bombardier and he said, hey, you know, I've got someone who's looking to fill uh, summer internship roles. Um, would you be interested? I said, absolutely. Put my name on the list. Didn't hear anything that year. And then the following year, which would have been my second year, um, I, I got sort of a cold call, <laughs> if you will, out of the blue saying, hey, we've got this opportunity, match on the list. Uh, business aircraft division, would you be interested? And then um, that was the that was the door being opened, right? That's what we're always looking for um, with internships or with job opportunities is just being able to get in the room and then you can speak to sort of how to go through an interview process beyond that. But that was the the door that, that was opened um, and I, I took the opportunity there. Similarly uh, with BDC, again, a relationship sort of friend of a friend um, that that had uh, an interesting role to, to recommend for me um, at BDC. And so obviously that's sort of the step one, the, the, the opening of the door, but then you've got to do your your due diligence in, in making sure that it's a, a fit for you, that you align with, with what they're expecting uh, of a candidate. Um, and then just sort of dialing in what you're going to be like in the in the interview what they're going to be looking for um, how to nail all of that so um, I know a couple other uh, other speakers have touched on sort of those interview skills and I can go into that uh, if needed but that's sort of the, the how those opportunities came about yeah a couple of good key takeaways from what you've just mentioned I think networking relationships never break your bridge with anyone because it's such a, a small world. Even if you work in a restaurant, you you never know if there's someone yeah. that can lend you a job in another industry. Uh, could be finance, engineering, consulting, whatever whatever it is. So, Especially in Montreal. Right? 
<laughs> yeah, Montreal's yeah. a very, very yeah. small world. Canada's a small world as well, I would say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My little experience, I, I can already tell. So I'm curious to hear about your your BDC experience. I, I read on your LinkedIn analyst, client contact center. I'm I'm curious to hear what what is your day-to-day as an analyst and maybe how, how did it evolve over time as you became a, a senior account manager at BDC? Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, walk you through that a little bit. So um, in relation to my first role, which was uh, that client contact center, I think the takeaway there is is not necessarily turning down an opportunity because it doesn't seem like um, sort of the, the, the best opportunity at, at the time. Um, that was, by all accounts, a pretty entry-level role. And I, I stayed there for about six to eight months. I can't recall exactly. But um, that was what I saw that as is a, a foot in the door. Um, and that's, that's very much what I made it to be. So, the, I mean, the... I want to say day one or week one from when I was there, I started networking pretty actively within the company. Um, and so this, just to give a little bit of an overview, of what that role was, was basically if you're not a BDC client, you would, that, that would be your, your, your entryway, either um, sort of cold outreach or emails or a couple other ways you could get in contact with us, describe your business, your projects. Um, and so we would be that first line of contact sort of doing an initial due diligence on what the need is, what is the business doing, what is your sort of borrowing capacity, and then we would we would distribute those to the respective teams across the country. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, pretty pretty entry level role, but uh, from there I I discovered sort of how the bank worked, uh, what the different interesting opportunities were within um, the financing side, the debt side of the bank, um, and then got an intern, a sort of an internal internship with the tech group, which is where I'm at now. Um, and yeah, it was what was meant to be a three-month internship turned into a full-time offer. They, did, they didn't want me going back to my old role. Um, and so did sort of like a three, four-month transition period and then started as um, an account manager. So um, the account management role that I'm in now basically means that I've got my portfolio of clients um, all focused in the tech sector, all located within Montreal. Um, and these are all companies that we have debt products with. So um, you can speak to the sort of the distinctions there uh, if needed, but I think it's kind of interesting to see the, the other side of the coin. Because uh, ultimately, a company has two ways to finance their operations, either through equity or, or through debt, if they're taking on outside capital. Um, and so we do the debt side of things. Our clients are small, medium businesses. So I would say the vast majority of my portfolio is zero to five million in revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're really helping them sort of start leaning into the commercialization process. So they've got a, a product or service that's starting to get some market traction. Um, they've got clients, they've, they've got, you know, a sense of how to grow the business, they just need some outside capital to, to accelerate things. Um, and what what happens with debt is that we allow founders, entrepreneurs to retain a larger percentage ownership of the business for longer, as opposed to going out and having to raise equity or sell part of their business to bring on that, that capital. Uh, we keep 
more money in their pockets for longer, allow them to scale, and then hopefully get uh, more money later on if they need to uh, sell the business. Great. So I was wondering, like, like what kind of debt are you issuing to the, to these businesses? Is it is it more senior? And like, given that like it's like more tech, very early stage, like, are you able to secure these loans or like have any type of collateral in any way? That's a good question. The majority, I would say, ninety five percent of what we do is unsecured. Um, so the thesis behind having a tech specific practice in a, a and a financial institution in a, a, a company that generally does debt um, is that the metrics for tech companies often don't fit too well with traditional uh, lender or, or right. traditional lenders metrics. So like debt to equity ratios are usually way off. Tech companies tend to have to burn a lot of money early on before they have a, a working product if they're developing software, for example. Um, and so, you know, these companies would have a very hard time. They, they'd put, you know, years of money and work into building a product, and then they would have a commercially ready product go to their bank, and the bank wouldn't be able to lend because the metrics were, were all out of whack. So we developed our tech practice to service that niche. Um, and so we're willing by our nature to take on a little bit more risk. Uh, and so that's where the unsecured uh, notion comes in. So to, to maybe explain that you have the, the traditional senior debt uh, secured loan is like, think of a building or your personal mortgage. Like you've got an asset that's securing the, the money that you're, you're lending. Um, the unsecured portion, what, what we're doing is say, you just need working capital to hire uh, staff, hire developers um, to develop a marketing campaign to whatever it is that's not tied to a specific asset. Um, so that's, like I said, 90, 95% of, of what we do. Um, and then where we do secure sometimes is on, can be on IP, you can take intellectual property. And again, that's more or less secured because it's, it can be pretty intangible. Um, but no, most of what we're doing is, is unsecured leverage loans just to, to help businesses um, sort of scale. Yeah, that's great. And I, I had a follow up on that. So Matthew and I both worked in public markets last summer. We we kind of saw tech companies, we kind of saw a crash in tech companies valuation. So I was wondering how did the, the, the tech financing landscape change from maybe last year to uh, to this year? And what's your view going forward on that? Yeah, it's been a tough run, I'd say the last month since the earlier this year, throughout the summer and, and through till now. Um, definitely companies that raised capital last year at a given valuation with a roadmap or a plan to raise again this year are finding it um, a very unreceptive environment. So their investors maybe are backing away or saying, let's push this off six months, see how you're doing. Um, let's you know have a down round or cut, cut the valuation meaning it's going to cost the, the entrepreneur more to raise that capital uh, or the, the business more to raise that capital. So uh, it's a tough environment to, to, raise, to raise equity in. What we're seeing in terms of impact for us is that we're doing certainly a lot of more bridge type financing. So what that means is that uh, we want to give 
give a company a little bit more runway, a few extra months or six months, whatever, before um, having to do that equity raise, um, giving them some more time to breathe, to hopefully get back to a better valuation, have their investors come back and say, okay, now we're comfortable um, um, with with uh, sort of the, the, the company situation. We're ready to re-inject capital. So um, I think going forward, we're going to see a lot more of that. Hopefully we, we, we remain as um, risk hungry as we are. Generally speaking, VDC in downtimes is going to be more, more active. Uh, we're here. I mean, we're a crown corporation federally, federally owned. So we, we kind of operate independently on our own, but we're owned by the people, if you will. So our, our role in times like this is to make sure that we can still deploy capital and help businesses that are are going to succeed because some will not succeed. Um, but those that, that are, hopefully we can give them the, the Maybe runway. Just, uh, a, a quick follow-up on this. You said BDC is a, the crown corporation. Could you uh, explain kind of where the money comes from? What, what, like, what money are you investing at, uh, mm -hmm. at BDC? Yeah. So, so at this stage, it is, it is ours. Um, when the BDC was originally created, uh, and now you're testing my, my history, here, but I, I want to say in the in the 40s or something like that, we'll be able to fact check that later. Um, it was originally taxpayer funded, um, but we've been operating profitably for I don't know how many years now. So we're always now returning funds to the taxpayer um, as as a um, a VC would be returning funds to their yeah. to their partners. Um, we are profitable and I'm, we're only speaking about the, the financing, the debt side of BDC, but we've also got uh, a massive VC arm and also an advisory arm. Um, but uh, yeah, these, these are BDC funds that we're, uh, that we're deploying. Um, hopefully that, uh, yeah, that uh, rounds out the understanding of what the, the Crown Corp title yeah. is. No, oh, 100%. And so I was wondering more on like, on the demand side in terms of like like new clients right now obviously like Foch touched on a little bit last year versus this year obviously a completely different landscape so are you seeing are you seeing more demand for for like early stage financing now because like because maybe we're seeing a lot less demand in, in tech right now some of these companies are maybe struggling a little bit more or are our companies trying to stay away from raising high level, like any debt right now because of higher rates it, it, we're starting to see the the unease or the uncertainty around around what their sort of next couple what the company's next couple of years looks like their appetite for a loan that's going to cost them 10 12 percent because honestly that's the the environment that we're in right now um so it remains to be seen how much that's going to sort of slow down the, the demand. We've still got tons of, um, of business coming across our desks, um, follow on from with existing clients as much as sort of new opportunities. Uh, but it is taking a little bit more time and negotiation, if you will, uh, to get these deals across the, the finish line, <clears throat> just because there's that, that painful rate aspect that, that's definitely playing into, uh, playing into the, the discussion now. 
Yeah, maybe maybe just to follow up on that, I think that's an interesting conversation. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I was wondering, have you ever dealt with sort of a distressed situation where your company not doing as well as you you thought? And maybe what do you do in, in that case? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole there's a whole range of what uh, difficult times can look like. Um, those can be very short term related to um, I don't know, a client's overexposed to, to a given customer and that customer is extending their, their payables, meaning they, they owe our client money and it's gone on 90, 120 days. And our client has been operating on the assumption that they're going to get paid in a normal 30 day timeline. So what that can put a stress, I guess, a short-term stress on the company. So they could, you know, it, it happens that our clients will miss a payment two payments um, and we're, we're willing to sort of be patient on that front because we know that it's a short-term issue and that sort of funds will continue to flow in and they will resume their, their operations as expected. So that's, I guess, the ideal tough situation <laughs> scenario uh, where things get a little bit more uh, difficult is when there's something more related to a, a larger decrease in demand, like the, the, their, the clientele is not so receptive to whatever product or service they're offering, or they're not willing to pay at a given price anymore, or they've, they've shifted to a new business model and it's not really working. Um, and so in times like that, I mean, we try to be <clears throat> as proactive as possible rather than reactive when it's too late. Um, but ultimately, I mean, we've got a whole other division of the bank, which is special accounts, meaning anyone who's missed more than two payments in a row, it's it's going to be handled by, by that side of things. And I don't have a ton of visibility on, on how that works. But um, ultimately, in the landscape, we're going to be generally the most patient lender out there. So we're willing to be uh, sort of, uh, we're willing to find agreements and alternative ways to, to to repay as long as you know there's there's good intent on on either side and the last thing any of us want is for companies to go under um and have to yeah you know close down operations but sometimes these things happen not every business will be successful um and so in certain instances we've got to kind of pull the plug there yeah maybe maybe we step back a little bit like how do you how do you prevent that from happening in the sense like so what's the what's the deal process like, and how do you like how do you evaluate like the credit worthiness of the companies that you're looking at? Yeah, well, I think that's a a very interesting aspect of what I do because at at the scale of business that that we're working with again, small medium businesses, um, I would say ticket sizes of anywhere from two fifty to a million is like mo where most of our deals are going through. So relatively small, I mean, even lower, call it a hundred thousand to a million is where most of our deals happen. Uh, but what's interesting is that as an account manager at BDC, you're, you're looking end to end, pretty well end to end at a deal, meaning you'll source it. You'll find the, the opportunities either through, you know, networking events, business partners, wherever an opportunity can come to you from. Or it could be, of course, an existing BDC client. So you'll source the deal, you'll kind of scope it out, get to know the client's needs, get to know the business, um, do some initial sort of financial analysis, look at the last couple of years of financials, um, 
and I can speak to that a little bit more. But once you've determined that there's sort of a, an interesting opportunity here, you'll emit a term sheet. You'll, you'll put out a term sheet like um, like any investor, like a VC would, perhaps, um, and you'll outline sort of the the due diligence package that's going to be needed. And so you'll you'll do that due deal pretty well end to end from from the sort of know your client, like uh, getting to know the, the individuals behind the business, um, getting to know the, the operations, who are the clients, what's the sort of the market competition. You'll, you'll do all of that. You'll do your write-up um, and you'll ultimately submit that due diligence package to, um, to our credit team, who's going to do the, the final underwriting and authorization. But you really get to see pretty, pretty well end-to-end -end minus, you know, having the authorization to, to click the loan because that's got to be a, a little mm -hmm. bit of a separation there. Um, but you'll see, you know, pretty well end to end what um, what sort of putting together a, a debt facility looks like. Yeah, I think we've covered a, a lot of, of good stuff and a lot of good key takeaways uh, from this podcast. And the emphasis was on tech today. So I was wondering if you, maybe on a lighter note, if you had any podcast, book or movie or whatever that you like to to watch that help you kind of get the grip and starting being passionate about uh about the tech industry uh, it's been a little while since i've since i've surrounded myself with the sort of broader market tech trends um i'm a big reader of of morning brew which i'm sure you guys yeah. uh, know of so um i'll read the emerging tech brew uh whenever those come out. Um, but I'm, I'm so surrounded by it day to day that I, I'm not, a, I'm not always uh, loading myself up with that after, after hours as well. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So yeah, I guess we'll, I guess we'll round it up here. Thank you so much, Chris, for, for coming and sharing all your insight into tech and, and the financing side of it. I think it's extremely insightful. And I know, I know we learned a lot as well. So yeah. Thank you my, very much. For my pleasure on. guys. Thanks Thank for having so me. Much. If anyone wants to, to reach out or chat, uh, chat a little more, um, feel free to find me, uh, find me on LinkedIn. I'll be happy to, uh, to connect. Perfect. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you guys. Have a good one.